honor to serve you this morning. It truly, truly is. So I just want to ask, who's enjoying the Traveling Light series? It's been amazing, hasn't it? It's been so good. And Craig's been on fire. So it's been amazing. And the lovely Dawn Speakman and I um, have so enjoyed connecting and hearing the feedback from the Traveling Light groups that meet during the week. It's been wonderful to hear all your stories and all the good things that are happening in your groups. So keep giving us the feedback. Um, we are truly, truly loving it, and it's been amazing. So I have to be really, really honest here. So um, as much as I have enjoyed this series, I've also been super challenged by it as well. Anybody else? It's been really, really tired. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really, really challenging. Um, for me, the book of James is so confronting and so convicting. And this morning is no exception. The content here, it has really pierced my heart. And I have to say, I feel quite unworthy to be up here sharing this. Um, but God is gracious. Amen. So before we dig into God's word, let's pray. Oh God, we are so grateful for your presence here this morning. And we are so grateful that we have the freedom to gather together to worship you. And so God, I ask, I ask for a fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name in this place this morning and on your people. And God, I pray that you would give us the very thing that we're talking about this morning, that you would just give us, give it to us, God. And God, I also pray that you would um, tenderly deal with us, even in the hard stuff that we're going to be talking about this morning. God, that you would incline our ears and our hearts to hear what you're saying, and that we would respond. And so, God, this morning, I pray that you crack us wide open and that you pour your spirit in. And that you would, oh God, have your way, have your way, have your way in this place and with your people. Everybody said? Amen, amen. So, we're going to crack open James. Now, James, in these verses that we are looking at this morning, is going to be talking to us about wisdom. Wisdom is the gold thread that is weaved throughout this whole book. Now, the wisdom that James talks about falls into two camps, the wise and the not wise. Worldly wisdom um, contrasted against godly wisdom. And he will show us the characteristics of these two camps, its source, and their perspective in life and their fruit. So what is wisdom? Firstly, it's not the same as knowledge, though it involves knowledge. Wisdom is more than just having knowledge. It's more than just knowing data. And we know this to be true. I'm sure we all know people who know a bunch of facts, are really book smart, but we wouldn't necessarily call them a wise person. You know, geniuses like the guys on that TV show, The Big Bang Theory. They can send a rocket to the moon, but would probably die in the bush if left alone to their own devices. You know, when I was in high school, um, I sat next to a guy in my biology class who was so book smart. He had a 4.0 grade point average, which means he had A's in all of his classes. Um, he aced every single test. But he would raid my lunchbox every day because he would literally forget to feed himself. 
So wisdom is more than just being book smart and acquiring knowledge. And I shared with the morning service, with the, I mean, the nine o'clock service, that as I was reading that, it just kind of occurred to me that maybe that was his game plan all along, to sit next to, to, sit next to the naive girl who would um, bring him lunch every day. Um, wisdom is more than just education. I mean, Nazi Germany was one of the most educated nations of its day, so it's more than that. You know, interestingly, the book of James roots this text in the Old Testament wisdom literature, the book of Proverbs. And like Craig said um, at the beginning, Proverbs are the short, pithy statements that really pack a punch. And the book of James is a New Testament version of the book of Proverbs because, as we're going to see this morning, boy, do they pack a punch. Now, in the book of Proverbs, there are a lot of synonyms for wisdom, and I love how one commentator put it. He said, if you were to hold a prism up to wisdom, um, all these synonyms would just shine out in their various colors. One synonym for wisdom is the word insight, which means to be able to see things for what they really are, to see the distinctions between um, things and to discern the difference between things and to understand how it works. And then there's this old school English word, the word prudence. And it's the idea of practical wisdom, um, understanding the dynamics going on and how to make beneficial decisions. And Proverbs 8 says, by wisdom kings rule. So I guess the short, so that wisdom is the basis for action. So I guess a definition for wisdom would be is to know how things are, know how things work, and then know what to do about it. We're shortened again. I understand how the world works and I understand how to navigate well within it. I mean, we all want that. We all want wisdom. By far, <clears throat> it is a prayer request that I hear the most and the prayer that I pray the most. And it has to do with seeking insight, discernment, and wisdom in all areas of my life. I mean, we all want wisdom. And what James is going to do is in this text is that he's going to give us a little test to see how we are doing, how well we are doing in our accumulation of wisdom. So he starts off by asking this question. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? It's almost like James is instinctively anticipating your answer. His question forces us to ask ourselves if I think I'm wise or not. Am I wise? Or how I characterize someone I think is wise. Do I think someone is wise if they are articulate and can use really, really big words? Do I think someone is wise if they are the loudest opinion in the room and can really drive home their point? Do I think someone is wise because they have so many degrees? Do I think someone is wise because they are rich and famous or in politics? Just a side note, I don't know what's weirder, Kim Kardashian in the Oval Office with President Trump or the NBA player Dennis Rodman in North Korea with Kim Jong-un. I don't know, these are crazy times, people. Now, James is going to do something very interesting. He asks, do you think you're wise? And the next thing he says, as we are trying to come up with the answer, in our text it says, he says, let them show it by their good life. 
Now, some translations say, let them show it by their good conduct, or by their good conduct, let them show. But I love what the Greek um, says here. It says, in the Greek, the first word is a command. It's an imperative. And it's this, show me. Who is wise and understanding among you? And just as about, you're about to answer, James just shuts it down. He doesn't want you to talk about it. He says, show me. Let them show it by their good conduct, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. And how are you going to show me? Let's have a look. And it's this. You're going to show it by your good conduct. We're going to see good conduct, a good life. And again, I love the Greek translation for the word, word good here. It's the word beautiful. So you think you're wise? Let them show it by their beautiful life. James is saying, I don't need to hear your words. I just need to look at your life to see if it is beautiful. In other words, in the life of a believer, we should be maturing in a life that is lovely and beautiful in the sense that we are practicing righteousness, that we are doing good works out of the overflow of a changed heart. A beautiful life is not one that is perfect and pristine and has all their ducks in a row, no. That's not the um, kind of beautiful life James is talking about here. It's about your internal character. It's about your heart. And it will show up in the way you make decisions, how you deal with money, the way you navigate relationships, the way you treat people, how you talk to people um, and about people around you when the camera's rolling and when the camera's not. You want to know how, what the hallmark of wisdom is? And we will see this permeated all through your character. The hallmark of wisdom is humility. True wisdom is characterized by humility. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their beautiful life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. True wisdom is characterized by it. James, again, is referencing the book of Proverbs and all through Proverbs. Who is the wise person? The person who understands that they don't know everything. The wise person understands that they don't have all the answers. And the definition of a fool in wisdom literature is a person who thinks they know it all. The fool is the one who is quick to speak and think they know all the answers. So if you think you are wise in your own eyes, Proverbs says you're a fool. It's only when you and I realize that we know nothing except Christ and him crucified that we are on the road and path to wisdom. True wisdom is marked by humility. And it's not just the Bible that says that. Um, there's this book called Deep Survival um, by a guy called Lawrence Gonzalez that was written in the early 2000s. And it's all about people who survive horrendous um, circumstances, you know, shipwrecks at sea and shark-infested waters, um, plane crashes in the Amazon, earthquakes and being trapped under rubble, etc. My husband loves these type of books and watching these type of documentaries. Now, the author interviews all sorts of survivors who have lived through harsh and difficult situations, and he documented common characteristics found in these survivors. Now, have a think for a minute. What defines survivors? You're in the jungle or in the Arctic. 
what do you think is one of the key characteristics of surviving? Is it having a gun, a first aid kit, a Swiss army knife, um, food, GPS, a cell phone? You know, in all his research, what he found was that one of the key characteristics for survival is humility. Gonzalez was interviewing paragliders, and the instructor was telling him that one of the most dangerous paragliders is not the newbie, not the new kid. The dangerous paraglider is the one who has been paragliding for about 100 hours of flight time. He knows how to handle the thermals. He can do cross-country trips. He's been up to cloud base. He said that person is the most dangerous. And they are dangerous because they think they know enough to think they know it all. And they are a danger to themselves and to everyone around them. And then he told this story about a friend of his about how on day one, his friend traveled 40 miles paragliding through the air, which is a pretty big deal in the paragliding world. But on day two, he died. Day two, he got into a rough situation where if he were wise, he would have parachuted out to safety. But he was so amazing on day one that he thought he could handle it himself and he kept trying to fix the problem until he hit the ground. And his friends said it was because he was so good on the previous day that he died on the next. And he said this, which I thought was so profound. He said this. You see, those who gain experience while retaining a firm hold to a beginner state of mind become long-term survivors. Let me read that again. Those who gain experience while retaining a firm hold to a beginner state of mind become long-term survivors. You want to survive? Gain experience, but never lose the beginner's state of mind. Always learning, not thinking you know it all, staying teachable. Humility is a characteristic of the wise. Another great example, I once heard Jim Collins speak at the Global Leadership Summit, which I totally recommend, and we hold that here at BBC. Now, Jim Collins wrote the great leadership book, Good to Great. And he said he wanted to find out if a good company could become a great company, and if so, how. So Collins and a team of researchers spent five years studying 11 corporations. And Collins identified two specific characteristics qualities shared by the CEO, CEOs of these good to great companies. And the first one wasn't a surprise. These men and women were driven, willing to endure anything to make their company a success. But the second trait these leaders had in common wasn't something the researchers, researchers expected to find. These driven leaders were humble and modest. They consistently pointed to the contribution of others and didn't like drawing attention to themselves. Um, these good to great leaders never wanted to become larger than life heroes, Collins said. They never aspired to um, be put on a pedestal or to become unreachable icons. They were, and I love this, they were seemingly ordinary people quietly producing extraordinary results. And when Collins interviewed the people who worked for these leaders, he says they continually used words like quiet, humble, modest, 
gracious, mild-mannered, self-effacing, understated, did not believe their own press or clippings and so forth to describe them. You see, here it appears is an open acknowledgement of humility's value, recognition that humility does work. And yes, amazingly, humility sometimes attracts the world's attention. But here's something even more profound and astonishing. And I love C.J. Mahaney's book on humility, and I totally recommend that too. And he said it like this, humility gets God's attention. You see, in Isaiah 66, 2, we read these words from the Lord. And it says this, These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. See, here, church, we find motivation and purpose rooted in this amazing fact. Humility draws the gaze of God. It's the person who is humble is the one who draws God's attention. And in this sense, drawing his attention means also attracting his grace and his unmerited kindness. Now think about that. There's something you and I can do to attract more of God's gracious undeserved supernatural strength and help. James 4, 6 says that God gives grace to the humble. What a extraordinary promise. And contrary to popular and false belief, it's not God helps those who help themselves. No, it's those who humble themselves that God helps. Humility is like a magnet for God's grace and his gaze. A truly wise and humble person just has to look up and look around and see how God has woven this earth together and has plans and purposes for it. A wise and humble person sees that and responds accordingly because they see God clearly, they see the world clearly, but they see themselves clearly. And Proverbs 9.10 says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is to be awed by an infinitely good and loving God. True humility isn't putting yourself down. It's a reality check that everything is not all about you. <laughs> by contrast, if you don't have humility, it's going to get rough in here. Guess what you do have? But if you harbor bitter jealousy, and selfish ambition in your hearts. Do not boast about it or deny the truth. So the hallmark of wisdom is humility. But if you are jealous and ambitious, don't be proud or cocky about that because that is not wisdom. And just to be clear, all ambitious motives aren't selfish. There are some forms of ambition, ambitious motives that are jealous for the well-being of someone else or jealous for the glory of God. But those aren't the motives that James is talking about in these passages. Notice he doesn't just say if you harbor jealousy. He says if you harbor bitter jealousy. And he doesn't just say if you have ambition. He says if you have selfish ambition. You see, jealousy turns bad and ugly and bitter when you take God out and put yourself in. I want it all for me. Bitter jealousy says, I want that for me and you have it, so I hate you. 
And we see this, I want it, you have it, I hate you, play it out all the time. How about every season of The Bachelor ever aired? You put 30 girls together in a house, all vying for the same guy, you got you some bitter jealousy and selfish ambition and a bucket loads of crying and drama. And apparently, we like it. Apparently, we like it. Because get this, they have filmed almost 22 seasons of it. The Bachelor has been on air for 16 years. It's incredible. Honestly, I wonder how they pitched that storyline. You know, one guy, all these girls, he gives them a rose. He, you know, it's amazing. Now, the NIV says that if you harbor bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, if you harbor, and what is a harbor for? What do boats do in a harbor? A harbor is a place where boats drop anchor. It's a picture of someone who drops their anchor as far as it will go and that it will not budge and anchors and anchors and anchors in their bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And it will drive and influence every decision that you make. And James goes on to say, and don't deny that that's what you're doing. Don't deny the truth. Don't try and cover it up. What is the opposite of deny? Church is to confess. We confess it. Admit the fact that we have dropped anchor in our bitterness and selfishness because it goes on, James goes on to say, such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And he says this, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every, every evil practice. He's saying that the problem with living your life that way, being earthly and making it all about me, is that we cut out all of heaven. We lose sight of God. We forget that there is a bigger story that's not about you, that God's story is at work here. And driving all of it, James says, is demons. It's demonic behavior. James is not messing around. He's right in our face about it. Notice that he doesn't say, if you are jealous and ambitious, just keep that under control. No. He says, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition is evil and dark. And if we are driven by that, we need to be careful because ultimately it will not end well for us. It is not from God and it's certainly not wisdom. And it sounds harsh, but he justifies it in the next well, he justifies it in that verse because he says, For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. You know, another word for disorder is instability. God wants to build up and build life. But if this is what is driving you, it brings instability and disorder to a community. It tears the fabric of relationships. And we know this. We know this, and we don't like it when we see other people do this. I mean, take sports teams, for example. When one player hogs the spotlight, and it's all about their numbers and their paycheck, not about the team, it rips teams apart, and it kills morale. Or how about rock bands who break up because of egos, because of in-house bickering? Like the Beatles, the Eagles, Fleetwood Mac, Oasis. The music just stops and everybody loses. And it can take decades for egos to be put aside and relationships to be restored, if ever. 
And what is so sobering is who James is talking to in these passages. He says, who is wise and understanding among you, my brothers and sisters? It's being played out in church. And where of all places should there be evidences of beautiful lives being lived out for the glory of God, but in our churches and in God's people? But when we operate out of worldly wisdom in our church families, instead of godly wisdom, it descends into disorder and every evil practice. And what James shows us is that worldly wisdom sows a harvest of disorder and instability in the soil of bitter envy and selfish ambition. And I have to pause here, um, church, and ask you, loved by God, beloved by God, as tenderly as I can, have you dropped anchor? Have you dropped anchor in your hurt? And has your hurt turned into bitterness? And I urge you, I urge you to confess it and to let God tend to you there because he loves you so. Have you dropped anchor? And as you value your life, confess it. But here comes the good news, amen? And he says this, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, or another interpretation is willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. I love the contrast. Worldly wisdom sows strife, godly wisdom sows righteousness and order in the fertile soul of peacemaking. Let's take that apart for a moment. The wisdom from above is first of all pure. That means that godly wisdom is rightly motivated, rightly motivated by the glory of God and for the good of others. No hidden agenda. It's gentle, not harsh. You have to love the people you minister to or who are speaking truth to. Without gentleness and love, everything you say will sound harsh. Godly wisdom is slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to get angry. Jesus himself likened himself to this quality. He said in Matthew 11, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Selah. Godly wisdom is considerate, open to reason. It is open to discussion. They do not find open and honest discussion threatening. They're quick to admit when they're wrong. They are teachable and quick to respond. Godly, godly wisdom is full of mercy. That means that it overlooks offenses. It doesn't hold on to hurts. It doesn't drop anchor there. Godly wisdom is full of good fruit, and we know what that is, church. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Godly wisdom is impartial. It doesn't play favorites. Godly wisdom is sincere. It is genuine and authentic and without show. And James ends the verse with this, peacemakers who sow in peace who reap a harvest of righteousness. You know, Jesus in his famous Sermon on the Mount said, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the sons of God. 
Notice what Jesus does not say. And notice what James does not say. He does not say, blessed are the peacekeepers, or that peacekeepers will reap a harvest of righteousness. No, he said, blessed are the peacemakers. There's a difference. You see, you and I are called to be peace, to make peace between God and man by sharing the good news of, of the gospel and pointing to the truth of salvation, pointing others to Jesus. But peacekeepers are people who avoid conflict at any cost. It's short-term resolution for an ongoing problem. It's passive. It's just hunkering down until the storm passes. But peacemakers are in it for the long haul. It's active, and it looks for ways to move forward and restore, restore relationships. They are willing to have that hard conversation with that loved one or coworker or that teenager. You see, peacekeeping is a path of least resistance. They don't even want to go there because it's too hard. And I suppose we all have those relationships where we tread on eggshells with, with someone and we can't talk about certain stuff. Or we pander to them time and time again just to keep the peace. Peacemaking is the harder path. It's the path of discipleship. Peace is not the absence of war. It's shalom. It's sharing my gifts and taking them and sowing in peace. And when I do that, my community flourishes and those in my sphere of influence, which means our friends and our family flourishes, everybody wins. And having these qualities, that is what it is to have a beautiful life. The fruit is righteousness. And when a humble person is, when humble wisdom is lived out, it truly is a beautiful thing to behold. And if our worship band could come out, that would be awesome. So how do we get this wisdom? James 1 says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God, for God gives generously to all. You ask, you ask, and God will give it, and he will give it in bucket loads. He will give it generously. What a glorious, glorious promise. And where is the ultimate source of wisdom? Proverbs will say that wisdom that by wisdom the foundations of the earth were laid and all her ways are peace. It personifies wisdom as a woman. It's an allegory of a woman that God took and wove wisdom in and all her ways are shalom. And when you get, but when you get to the New Testament, wisdom is not just an allegory. A physical person comes up and scripture says that by all things, were made through him. But I love how Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 1. He says this, Jesus has become for us wisdom from God. You want to see wisdom? Look at Jesus. Jesus does not just possess wisdom. He is wisdom. And as he walked um, in the world, what happens? He is a son of God, all powerful, and demons flee in front of him. And what does he do? He is kind to the hurting. He takes verbal assault and persecution and doesn't strike back, but he bends the knee and he washes the feet of his messed up disciples. He becomes a servant even unto death, death on the cross. Wisdom personified becomes to us the Prince of Peace. 
He sowed peace for us because we were not okay with God because of the kind of evil heart we've been talking about. And Jesus took on all of that, all that evil, dark, and twisted sin, and he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we could be made right with God. He brought peace back. You want wisdom, church? You want wisdom? Ask. But most of all, follow Jesus. And let's do it together. Amen? Amen. Stand as we worship our beautiful God.